Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> I got too much, too many things in my hand here. Uh, thank you uh, for the introduction. Thank you for having uh, me here at Dort University. I, um, I've only had one previous exposure to Dort. Uh, we didn't even talk about this, so you don't know what I'm going to say. So uh, back in um, the late 90s, as a college student, I played baseball for uh, Masters College, now called Masters University. And uh, Dort University came out on some California tour, and, and we played Dort University. I hadn't heard of this school before that. Um, and I share that because we absolutely crushed you guys. And so <laughs> that's probably a terrible way to build, you know, you're supposed to build bridge, you know, with the audience, and I probably just botched it, but it is what it is. It, it was a, it was a double-digit difference, um, so anyway, I'm still um, living the dream, living the dream at 45. Um, what I want to do this morning is a, a little bit maybe different than how I usually speak into this conversation. I want to talk about how to even have a healthy dialogue about LGBTQ-related questions. And so, l let me just tell you my view up front as clearly as I possibly can. I, I believe very strongly in what's called a historically Christian view of marriage and sexual relationships. I believe God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman, and that all sexual relationships outside of that covenant bond are not uh, God's design and are considered sin. I'm not going to defend that view this morning. Um, I'm going to actually try to play a bit of a, a neutral referee, but I want to be honest with where I'm, uh, you know, where my theological position is at. What I want to do is I want to assume that half of this audience disagrees with me, and the other half agrees with me. Like, I'm going to pretend like we're in a room, and I don't know if you want to divide it down the middle, but I'm going to, uh, I, I'm going to pretend that, you know, half of you maybe agree with same-sex marriage, and the other half don't. And I want to help us all to cultivate a better way of even going about this conversation. And now, obviously, you know, this is, this is Dort. I, I would, realistically, most of you probably, at least, uh, believe in, in the historically Christian view of sexuality. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll dive more into that tonight, but uh, I want to help us to navigate a better conversation. So I'm going to give us eight pieces of advice on how to even go about this dialogue when there is uh, disagreement. First point, uh, and this is so important. I did kind of list these in order of, I think, importance. Uh, number one, we need to seek to understand before we try to refute. And this goes for any kind of theological, ethical Dare I say political, I'm not even going to go there, that, that would be problematic for many reasons, but and whenever there's, there's any kind of volatile disagreement, we need to work hard to understand what it is we're even disagreeing with. Understanding, genuine understanding must precede refutation, otherwise your refutation will not be credible. And I don't know about you, but most people, I think, have a tendency to defend their own view and critique the other view that they already assume is wrong before they actually understand it. I went many years of my life with this kind of uh, posture. I remember back in, in, in seminary, I won't tell you where I went, um, but I mean, there's a thing called Google, you can figure it out. But I, at my seminary, I remember we, we um, as part of, a the, uh, part of Theology 101 or whatever, like we interacted with the view of open theism. And instead of reading books by open theists to understand it, we were assigned simply 
the critique of open theism by somebody who, I come to find out later, didn't actually represent the view very well. I'll, I'll never forget, I, uh, a few years ago, I had to apologize to, you may know the name Greg Boyd, who you know, has written a few books on this topic, and I had to apologize to him because I said, look, I, I, um, I, I thought you were the devil. <laughs> I thought you were Satan's right-hand man, and, you know, if you know Greg, he probably shrugged his shoulders and said, well, maybe I am, you know, um, but I, I, I had this view of you all these years based on, simply based on the critiques of what you said, not based on what you actually said. I didn't even know what you actually said about open theism. Now, many years later, I still disagree with the position, but I think I have a much better understanding of what that position even is because I sought to understand before I sought to refute. So we need to, when it comes to sexuality conversations, we need to understand what, what the, the other view, the other view that maybe you disagree with or didn't grow up with, we need to understand what that view even is, best case scenario, from the people who hold that view so that if and when we disagree with it, whichever side you're on, we're actually disagreeing with the actual view and not a caricature of that view. Number two, and um, th- this would be maybe um, uh, bent toward those of us who are on the traditional side of sexual ethics and, and those of us who do not identify as LGBTQ+. We need to intentionally and humbly listen to those who identify as LGBTQ+. Years ago, I started doing this, just listening to stories and, and, and testimonies from people who grew up, many of whom grew up in the church uh, as same-sex attracted or wrestling with their gender identity. And uh, the most common response I got was, I've never met a Christian who simply wanted to hear my story. I never met a Christian who seemed to care about me as a, as a human being. I've met a lot of Christians who wanted to, you know, quote Romans 1 at me or, or, or refute my theological position, but it's very rare that I would meet a Christian who is simply kind to me. And I think that is profoundly problematic. Live, lived experiences, lived experiences should not determine our theology or ethical beliefs. Okay, I, that, that's... That's controversial, okay, so just you need to think about it before you absorb it, but I, I, I think lived experience shouldn't determine our theology, but it should shape the way we go about thinking theologically and ethically, especially when we're not just wrestling with certain abstract theological if- issues, but ethical perspectives that have a significant effect on the real lives of real people. We need to listen humbly and intentionally to LGBTQ people. We also need to wrestle with the right questions. And this is something I see, um, it's pervasive, I think, in this conversation. You have two people who are battling back and forth, who are arguing back and forth, and they're not actually asking the right questions. Oftentimes, people will maybe, when it comes to same-sex relationships, they'll, they'll race to passages like Leviticus or Romans and, and look at what the Bible says about same-sex sexual relationships, but there's actually deeper questions that need to be wrestled with when it comes to same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage. So in terms of sexuality, the main question is not what does God think about same-sex relationships? The main question isn't even why can't 
two people of the same sex get married? That's an important question, but it's not the primary question. The main question is not can two people of the same sex get married. The main question is what is marriage? When you, when you say the word marriage, marriage, no, um, I, I w- <laughs> couldn't help. Um, when you say that word, what does that word mean? Because, because there's, there's, there's a debate about the very meaning of, of marriage. Is marriage a consensual union between two adults, and it just so happens to take place between two people of different sexes? Or is marriage intrinsically a consensual union between two sexually different people? These, these are two possible definitions of marriage, and this is this, where we need to begin. Which one of these do you think best, is best represented in Scripture, and why? Is marriage a consensual union between two adults, or is it a consensual union between two sexually different persons? And I think we need to ask deeper questions, too, like, wh- not, what is marriage by definition, but what's marriage for? Why did God create marriage? If you want to get married, um, why, like, why do you want to get married? Is it a calling? Is it a vocation? Is it something God is calling you into? And, and why would he create this institution? And what's sex for? These are really basic questions that sometimes we don't even raise when it comes to these debates. We need to get underneath the very concept of, of marriage and, and understand and articulate a robust uh, biblical theology of what marriage is even for. Now, I, you know, I, I, I do hold to the view number two. I, I do think there's a lot of biblical evidence that sex difference, that biological sex, male and female, is an intrinsic part of what marriage even is from, from Genesis 2, uh, Matthew 19, and other passages. But, but this, is where the, this is where the theological starting point needs to happen. And look, I, I've read, <laughs> I, I've read, I won't name them, I've read whole theological books defending, for instance, that the Bible uh, endorses same-sex monogamous um, marriage um, without even raising the question, what is marriage? They enter into this, you know, argument without, with an assumed definition of marriage without even unpacking or defending what that definition is. When it comes to trans, the trans conversation, tonight we're going to focus largely on uh, the T of LGBTQ. Um, I, I think there's a, a great need for more clarity on, on this aspect of the conversation. But when it comes to the, the T of the LGBTQ, for, and, and by the way, LGBTQ isn't a synonym for gay. There's a big difference between LGB and T. It's really unfortunate, I think, that the acronym is kind of thrown around as if there's, you know, one kind of person that is LGBTQ. When it comes to the T, the main question is not, should we accept trans people? Well, we should accept all people. The question is, what is the theology that we're in an ethical position that we're accepting people into? But, but Jesus welcomed all kinds of people to, to come and follow him. The question is, what does it mean to follow, to follow Jesus? When it comes to the trans conversation, the, the main question before we can even get into it is if someone does experience some kind of incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of who they are, which is the definition of of gender identity. Gender identity is your internal sense of who you are. The main question is if there is some kind of conflict between your internal sense of who you are and your biological sex, then which one 
are you and, and why? Now, many of you want to just give a quick answer to this question. I would encourage you to reflect on it. I would encourage you to linger on the why part of this so that we don't just, you know, embrace a particular view out of a knee-jerk reaction, but that we actually understand, again, the arguments on both sides of this question. Number four, and I kind of alluded to this in the, in the last one, the debate, you know, I, I, I originally worded this, the, the debate is, is not about inclusion versus exclusion, and I actually had to reword it um, to the debate should not be <laughs> about inclusion versus exclusion. Because some people do make it about inclusion versus exclusion, and I think that that's a wrong way of framing the, the debate. The question should never be whether the church should accept LGBTQ people. That, that, that should never be the leading question. The, well, the, question, the answer to that is obviously, it should be obvious, yes! <laughs> yes, Jesus said, all, whoever is weary and heavy laden, come to me. He has a desire that all would come to a saving knowledge of faith in him. The, the door is wide open. But the road is very narrow. The question is not whether the church should be inclusive. The question, the main question is what is the sexual ethic that we are including people into? That's where the debate needs to take place. And, and by debate, I, you know, discussion, dialogue might, be, might resonate with Gen Z a little, little more. My friends tell me that the students don't speak debate ease very much anymore. <laughs> um, dialogue, discussion, conversation, or debate, I don't know if you're into that, but um, th th does that make sense? Like, you should, it's not whether we should accept people. We should accept all people, but what are we calling all people, what are we accepting all people into? What is the ethic, the, the posture, the way of life that, that we are saying comes with calling Jesus Lord? But I think that's a really important distinction to make. Now, I mean, I'll be the first one to, to, to admit that, that I, I think churches sometimes struggle with this. Um, that, that sometimes, while we will say theologically that justification precedes sanctification, I mean, this is a reformed school, so I mean, I should get more amens out there from that. Justification precedes sanctification, or acceptance precedes obedience. Thank you. A couple Calvinists out there. But when it comes to this conversation, sometimes I think we practically flip it around and we become very Arminian. <laughs> That's a, no, 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 no. That maybe Pelagian would be a better phrase. We, we kind of want people to kind of clean up a little bit before we actually accept them, but that is theologically upside down. Yes, ex wide open arms to welcome people to walk arm in arm as one broken sinner to another, pursuing the only one who is not broken, Jesus Christ. And so we need to have maybe more clarity on what it is to walk in discipleship towards Jesus, but we want all people to be welcomed into that door, and we want to be really clear about what the narrow road entails, because walking that road oftentimes includes hardship and self-denial and suffering and difficulty and joy and flourishing. I, I've got a friend, um, his, his name's Tony, he, um, 
Tony is attracted to uh, men. He's same-sex attracted, loves Jesus with all of his heart. Uh, ended up, uh, he holds to a traditional view of sexuality, like very strongly. Uh, you know, years ago he tried to pray the gay away, and the gay didn't get prayed away for whatever reason, and so he lives with same-sex attraction, if I, can, if I can word it like that. Well, he ended up getting married to a woman. They have a couple kids together. Uh, they actually, and this isn't prescriptive, but descriptive, they actually have a very beautiful marriage. He's a, a youth pastor, sold out for Jesus, and yet he's not, he hasn't been that pub, or in the past, he wasn't that public with the story. Well, well you know, finally he told the senior pastor, who, who knew his story, he's like, hey, I think I need to let my congregation know at least that I wrestle with same-sex attraction, but I'm, you know, obviously submitting this to Jesus, walking faithfully to, towards him, and, you know, he shared his story and, uh, in front of the church, and I think seven families left. Because apparently, pastors can struggle with sexual temptation. Apparently, pastors can resist sexual temptation. Apparently, pastors can do that and walk faithfully to Jesus, except when it comes to this sexual temptation, according to the view of these families that, that left. And that's, you know, so I think churches, I, we, we do have a ways to go to where we actually live out this truth of, yes, absolutely, we need to be radically, radically inclusive and courageous in articulating and living out the ethic that we are calling, that we are including people into. The debate is not about, number five, the debate is not about what the Bible says, but what the Bible means. Okay, right? So, they're, they're, you know, the, the, what are the three steps of Bible interpretation? You know, observation, interpretation, application. And, and I think some, for some people, they think that they can simply quote Romans 1 on their Facebook and think that quoting Romans 1 settles this conversation. And that is, it's, uh, I, I love Romans 1. It's a beautiful chapter, beautiful book. Like, I'm really a big fan of Paul. Um, but simply quoting the Bible is not enough. There's no debate about what the Bible says. In fact, I, I, most gay people I know, they know Romans 1 backwards and forwards. They can quote it in Greek, in Hebrew, in Aramaic, in Latin, because they have been beaten over the head with it all their lives. They know what Romans 1 says. They know what Leviticus 18.22b says. They, they know these passages better than most straight people because they have ha they've had their faces rubbed in it most of their lives. But what do these passages mean? What do they mean? What is Rom does Romans 1 apply to consensual, um, uh, non-abusive same-sex relationships? That, that, that's where the debate lies. I, I think it applies to all same-sex relationships, but we need to have that conversation about the meaning of Romans 1. We need to talk about whether Leviticus 18.22 is applicable for Christians today, because there's other verses in Leviticus that we would say, no, I'm not going um, to obey that one, but this one applies to today. Okay, well, what's your rationale for saying this is for today and this one is not? We need to understand what the Bible means, not just what it says. And for my, so, that, that, so I'm kind of challenging maybe conservatives there. Let me challenge progressives, the, the other half. Do you guys want to be the progressive? Or, uh, you guys are all mixed amongst each other, the 50%. Um, we can't, you can't just quote like, love your neighbor as yourself and think that settles it. Well, I'm on the side of love. Love is love. All means all. These are, these are empty slogans that don't help 
the conversation. Obviously, we should love our neighbor as ourselves, but I don't think agape biblical love is necessarily at odds with a sexual ethic. So the conversation needs to happen around what does the Bible mean, not just what it says. I think, number six, unbiblical expectations of marriage have hindered both sides of this conversation. If you see me squinting, it's because my eyes are terrible, and I want to make sure I don't take you more than like a half hour past. I think I'm doing okay. Um, unbiblical expectations of marriage hinder both sides of this conversation. Okay, so, so I grew up in, in, in a, a conservative evangelical environment where, um, where, where it, it was believed not always, well, sometimes explicitly, but often implicitly, it was believed that singleness is simply a pathway to marriage, and if everything goes right, you should be married by, you know, 22, 23, 25, once you get late 20s and something's kind of off, you know, like God's not making good on this promise. God forbid you would be 34 and still single, like, oh, okay, something's wrong here. You hear people say, wow, she's so pretty. How come she's not married yet? Yet. The, the, the Western modern evangelical church has baked the promise of marriage into the gospel, and yet there's not a shred of evidence in the New Testament that part of the good news is that you will have a spouse and you will have great marital sex, especially if you, keep your, if you save yourself from marriage. Okay, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Don't go past first base with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Okay, if you do that, then God will give you a spouse and you will have a ma- this great marital sex. I think we've absorbed, I don't, maybe it's just me, maybe it's just mine, but I grew up with, the, if you're an older single person, something went wrong. We have this understanding that marriage is a promise rather than a possibility, that marriage is a guarantee rather than something God might call somebody into for a specific purpose. And so I think, you know, the, the, even the traditional sexual ethic, it, it actually feels pretty secular. I think we have given people the impression that you can't really flourish as a human being unless you, you get married and are sexually active, or more specifically, that, that you're having sex with the person you desire to. Now, the Christian contribution to that secular ethic is we have a little footnote that says, but wait until you're married. That, that's, our, that's our contribution to the, 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 the secular sexual ethic. But there's a, a small problem to that way of thinking, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the exemplar of what it means to bear God's image. He is the one human who flourished more than anyone else. And he did so as a single man of marital age. And I think there's theological significance to that. Humans can live without sex. That's debate, that's... In terms of the New Testament, that's not, that shouldn't be disputed, but culturally it's incredibly disputed. Humans can live without sex, but we can't live without intimacy and love and community and relationships. And unfortunately, I think we've collapsed all those together. Okay, so I think on the conservative side, we have this unbiblical expectation of marriage, and yet I do think that the progressive side has simply adopted that assumption that unless somebody who's same-sex attracted 
finds a sexual partner that they're not going to be able to flourish. And all that is is a mirror image of the same idolatry of marriage that was created by the conservative side. So I think we need to have a robust understanding of what it means to be a sexual being and what it means to flourish as a human being and whether or not sex is a necessary part of of human flourishing. Number seven, and this is really important, um, the harm argument goes both ways. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but um, uh, appeals to harm have become an, un, there's been an unprecedented spike in society in the last four or five, six years in appeals to harm as part of an ideological argument for a particular ethical view. Um, I've I've noticed it over the last 10 years, and there's many sociologists and psychologists who have pointed this out, Nassim Taleb, um, Jonathan Haidt, Greg Lukianoff, and many others have, have, have seen that there is a rise in what Jonathan Haidt calls safetyism, or Nassim Taleb calls uh, fragil- fragility. Um, and, and yeah, th- th- I think this is a much larger conversation. Now, I, I think, and, and yet it's trickled into conversations about sexuality that somebody says, it, you know, it, people often argue along the lines of harm, that if something seems to be harmful for certain people, therefore it's ethically wrong. And I'm, I'm just, I'm really nervous about that line of reasoning. I think it's wrong-headed, and, and I do think it can go both ways. Now, let me, let me be the first one to admit. Christians have done things and said things that have harmed a lot of LGBT people raised in the church. I mean, I've got hundreds of stories, just anecdotes, just me personally, I've got hundreds of stories of legitimate harm committed by Christians toward LGBT people. Not my, my, another friend of mine, I mean, just the first one that came to my, my head, uh, he was, uh, a, a, when he was a kid, wrestles, you know, had unwanted attraction to the same sex after puberty, he was Christian, grew up in the church and everything, and he overheard his dad, you know, he, he's keeping this to himself, and he over, overheard his dad say, oh man, if my son were gay, I would kill him. That's, that's harmful. And so when my friend was 15, he, he, he went to the, his dad's dresser in the middle of the night, grabbed a loaded gun, went into the bathroom, and was about, to, was about to end his life because he thought that that's what his dad wanted because that's pretty much what his dad said. Two in the morning, about to pull the trigger, he gets a phone call from some random friend in a different state and said, hey, I, the Lord just laid on my heart to talk to you and I don't know if you're going through anything. Sorry to wake you up, you know, but I just want you to know God loves you and, and, and you're valuable to him. So he didn't pull the trigger and now he's, and now he's a pastor, actually, <laughs> living faithfully uh, towards Jesus. So, so th- there has been a lot of harm, but I don't think it's intrinsic to the historically Christian sexual ethic. That's where the big dividing line must happen. Christians who hold to maybe true views on certain things can do really harmful things, but that's a misuse 
of a particular view, not intrinsic to the view itself. The question shouldn't be, is it harmful? The question is, is it true first? Because if, if it is true, then by definition, it's not harmful. It might be difficult, might cause you to deny yourself on some, some level, but it's not harmful. In fact, there, there's been two studies done on, on, well, several, but two that are really important studies done on LGBT people in the church. One pointed out that 83% of LGBT people were raised in the Christian church. <laughs> millions and millions and millions and millions of LGBT people that, you know, some people think, oh, that community out there, well, that community out there was at one point sitting in our pews, silent and scared, because they were wrestling with something that they were told they're not allowed to wrestle with. 83% raised in the church, 51% end up leaving the church after 18, but only 3%, only 3% said they left primarily for the church's teaching on marriage and sexuality, meaning the overwhelming majority left for relational problems. They were shunned and shamed and made fun of and mocked and isolated and lonely, and they needed to leave the church to find love, which is a whole nother um, sermon, um, but it wasn't the theology primarily that was driving them away. Another study was done on the happiness of LGBT people. It showed that religious LGBT people were more happy than non-religious, and I'm not sure how they measure this, and I'm not saying this study like is a game changer or whatever, but it's just very interesting that religious LGBT people were actually shown to be happier than non-religious, and the secular people who did this study were shocked that it didn't matter whether the religious LGBT people were conservative or progressive. And the harm argument, you know, so I, it can go both ways. What about, okay, so I have stories, hundreds of stories of, of, of LGBT people harmed by, I think, again, a misuse of maybe the truth. What about the millions of LGBT people who um, found joy and fullness of life after they encountered Jesus and embraced a traditional sexual ethic. I was just in, in, in Montana, Billings, Montana, a, few, a couple weeks ago and gave a talk to a church, and afterward, this older uh, lesbian came up. She's, she's uh, been a lesbian in the community for 20-plus years or something, and she just came to Christ six months, bef- like, six months ago on fire for Jesus. And she said, she came up, introduced herself, told me her story, blew my mind. And she says, you know, I want to be honest. I was nervous to come tonight because I thought, I was, I was nervous that you were going to say that being in a same-sex relationship is okay. The, the fact that you were bold enough to give us God's design, because that, that, I'm so excited you did that because that is how I found life in Christ. She goes, I wish I brought the whole entire lesbian community of Billings, Montana here tonight if I knew you were going to actually tell us the truth of what God says. I don't know how many lesbians there are in Billings, Montana. Maybe it might have been like three people that would have showed up. But that, that would have been, been interesting. But I, so what do we do with that whole side of things? Y- yes, there are people who would, might say, oh, the traditional view is harmful. There's a whole s- slew of other people who say, no, I have found life in the hard road that Jesus has called me to. What about the harm argument um, what, what about the progressive approach? This is going to be super debated, okay? But I, this is the world I live in. <laughs> People say, well, that was controversial. I'm like, everything I do, I'm walking contradiction, or controversy, so get over it. Um, what about, what about the, the progressive approach to trans teenagers? This is a huge, complex debate within just even very liberal circles. 
lot of trans teenagers coming out of trans, coming out as trans, and then they're kind of, some of them are rushed to irreversible medical procedures, and then a few years later, they're like, I'm not trans, I'm a lesbian or whatever, and, and, and now I've had, I bear the marks of an ideology, and I am really upset. There's all kinds of stuff going on in the UK, lawsuits happening of young 20-something women who said, I was experimented on medically because of this ideology that the, the medical community has adopted. Now, I'm, I'm not even saying that, that's, that's complex. I'm saying that this, this, if you appeal to harm, both sides can do that. Both sides can appeal to harm, but that doesn't further the discussion. The question is, is it true, not is it harmful? Uh, lastly, um, Christians should humanize and honor people they disagree with. Well, <laughs> All people should humanize and honor people they disagree with. Um, now, this, this is a rarity in, in, in the last four years, especially the last year. Um, uh, I, I think this is really hard for some people. It's been hard for the church. But man, you can vigorously disagree with somebody over a significant issue and still uphold the dignity of their image-bearing status before our Creator God. We can, you can do it. In fact, I would say, in 2021, given how polarized and dehumanizing these tribalistic, polarized political debates are, there is like a golden opportunity, a wide-open door for the church to embody a different way. Will we do it? Will we model for the world that can't get this right, that we can disagree with people and yet humanize, humanize them in the process. This is a quote from a, a woman who was raised in a church, ended up leaving the church. She's a lesbian. She said, all, all I wanted was to feel loved by those in the church I grew up with. Love has given me time to be with you to figure this out together. If you let any church people read this, tell them I don't have to be right to feel loved. I just have to be dignified in our disagreement. People are rarely argued into the kingdom or argued into, you know, the truth. But we all have stories, maybe personal testimonies, where we were loved into faith in Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says in Romans 2.4, that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Not the argument of God that leads to repentance, but the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Oh, there's a place for debate and dialogue and, 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 and responding to different arguments, but, that, but we need to humanize people and love people, truly, genuinely love people and delight in their God-given humanity in the midst of what may be a rigorous debate. Our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. Because the greatest apologetic for truth is love. I'm going to pray. Thank you, Lord, for embodying the kindness, your kindness towards us, Lord. Um, we all have a story, I'm sure, where we encountered your love, your kindness, your grace. That when we were yet sinners, we realized that your death was for us, Lord. Thank you for being the full, perfect embodiment of grace and truth, Lord, and give us the courage, give us the courage, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to embody that love to a world that absolutely needs it. In Christ's name, amen.